Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, April 10th here in New York City. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe and healthy during this crazy time and that people are trying to make the most of what they can during the situation. Uh, Coming up today on the podcast, I have an interview with Coach Flakertsy from the University of Rochester. Uh, It was a really interesting conversation, a really interesting interview. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, They're one of the premier Division III basketball programs in the whole country. And it was just a really interesting interview, so I hope you guys enjoy it. I want to start today's podcast off by just recommending two articles that I read on The Athletic. Uh, One was by David Aldridge, and I think the other was also by David Aldridge, where they detailed the Utah Jazz response to Rudy Gobert testing positive about what happened in the lead-up to it and then what happened afterwards. Both of those articles were fantastic and provide a lot of insight into why seemingly it's been reported that their relationship between Donna Mitchell and Rudy Gobert is on the brink of collapse and just some other really interesting things about what really happened that night and what the league was doing before that and after that. So I recommend those two articles on The Athletic. So I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back, I'll be joined by Coach Flakertsy from the University of Rochester. Joining me today on the Double Double is the head men's basketball coach at the University of Rochester, Luke Flakertsy. He played his college ball at Grinnell College, a Division III school in Ohio, known for their high-scoring offense, and then began his coaching career in the NESCAC as an assistant at Amherst College. After three seasons at Amherst, he bounced around Division III with one year stopped at the University of the South, Amherst again, and the University of Rochester before being named the head coach at Skidmore College in the summer of 2007. He quickly turned around the program, going from six wins in his first season to 16 in his third year in a trip to the conference semifinals. In the summer of 2010, he became the head coach at Rochester, one of the premier Division III basketball programs in the country. He has continued the tradition of success at Rochester by making four NCAA tournaments, including a trip to the 2017 Elite Eight and winning the ultra-competitive UAA conference twice. I am thrilled that he has taken the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me on the show, David. Really appreciate you taking the time. So just to start off, kind of, Coach, where did you grow up, and how did you first fall in love with uh, with the game of basketball? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, a layered question. I mean, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, first 18 years of my life, and um, just my first passion started in middle school as a player and just kind of built, uh, you know, you know, I think it was the competition that drew me most to the game. Just loved competing, you know, loved giving it my all. And, you know, later uh, in my high school career, I knew I wanted to pursue it in college. And so, you know, just kind of built over time and you know, transitioned into a, a passion for, for coaching the game. Uh, and that really started in, in my first year as a college coach uh, at Amherst College, like you mentioned. And, uh, you know, just enjoyed it uh, ever since. So you end up choosing Grinnell for college where you played basketball. 
And for the listeners who don't know, Grinnell plays a very unique style of basketball that is not traditional by any means. Can you kind of describe what the Grinnell system is and what it was like to play for them? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I could laundry list 20 facts about Grinnell basketball that would, I, I think, just surprise just about anybody. But um, to answer your question, the Grinnell system, like any college basketball program or system has kind of evolved uh, over time. So to characterize it as, as just one thing really wouldn't be fair. I think uh, Coach Arsenal Sr. and now Coach Arsenal Jr., who's uh, uh, running the program, you know, they've done a really nice job of adapting uh, on an annual basis to kind of tweak the system to you know adjust to how people are playing them, but also adjust to their strengths. And so it's it's had different iterations. You know, I think the the, the quickest um, uh, kind of explanation is it's kind of like hockey on hardwood. Uh, you know, line shifts typically five at a time, really, you know, with a huge emphasis on pace of play and multiple possessions, kind of analytic basketball before it's time. Um, and, you know, full court press, you know, really um, just trying to create that tempo and uh, kind of wear you down over the course of the 40 minutes of a game. And, a lot of people like to compare it to Loyola Marymount. That was kind of the first um, you know, team to do it on the national stage. Um, but I think it's kind of that version times 10, so to speak. And it was just a really fun program to be a part of. And I have a ton of pride in Grinnell College basketball. Yeah, I'm sure. So one of the key ideas of the Grinnell system when it was created by Coach Arsenal was for the players to, to have more fun and to really have a great college experience. And so how do you think playing in that type of system affected your own college basketball experience rather than, let's say, if you played for a program that played a traditional style? Yeah, I mean, just to talk about Coach Arsenal briefly, he's kind of like a, a mad genius, you know, this uh, scientist. He, he played a very conventional um, you know, style of basketball growing up and in college. Uh, he played for the great Dick Whitmore at Colby in the NESCAC and mm-hmm. uh, very conventional basketball player, very defensive-minded and, and really was committed to that early on. And uh, I think he was before his time just really evaluating the culture uh, at Grinnell College and kind of what was going to be, uh, you know, uh, effective there what was going to fit into the the student body culture and uh what was going to help his his players have fun and so you know he tells the story the best where you know he you know it kind of was um necessitated by their circumstance i mean they really he felt like that was the only way they could be competitive and they had some fun doing it um and uh, kind of the next year, he had the team vote whether or not they wanted to keep doing it. And, and they did. And it kind of just built from there. And, and they voted, as he says, to never vote again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think what always surprises people is just how long he's done it. You know, yeah. I'm coming out of uh, high school in uh, 1997 and, and they had already been doing it for multiple years and had some great success with it. And so. Uh, people are quick to ask, oh, did you play the system? And yeah, it's been going for, you know, 30 plus years. So, yeah. um, you know, kind of the, the, the longevity of it, the success they've had, and, and most importantly, just the, the, the enjoyment that the student athletes have had with that experience is, is second to none. And, and that's really what I 
you know, was able to do in, in college. I was able to play college basketball. I was able to do it uh, immediately, which is part of the draw uh, of going to Grinnell because kind of everyone plays, you know, everyone has different roles, but uh-huh. pretty much anyone in the program plays from day one. And, um, you know, my role, just like any other program, my role built over, over my career. And I was just able to really um, enjoy my experience. It really fosters and cultivates just uh, true team first basketball when you have everyone participating like that. So while you were at Cornell, I'm sure at a school like Cornell, as guys approach their juniors and senior years, they start thinking about internships and different fields and what they want to do post-graduation. Kind of when did you decide that you were interested in pursuing coaching as a career? Yeah, I, I kind of backed into it. Um, you know, I, uh, Grinnell College is a great academic opportunity. I learned a ton in the classroom, you know, true liberal arts. Um, you know, but I got to my junior, senior year, and I, I wasn't really quite sure. I was a psychology major. I was thinking about going into sports psychology because I knew I wanted sports to be part of what I was doing. But at the time, in uh, the early 2000s, it was kind of um, more of an uh, independent contractor model uh, to be a sports psychologist. And, and that kind of um, you know scared me a little bit. I, I didn't necessarily want to have my own business as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, senior year, I was just kind of evaluating and, and trying to decide, you know, what seemed cool. And, and I really had a ton of admiration for my uh, athletic director in college. Her name was Dee Fairchild. Um, had a great relationship with her, um, which uh, I felt privileged to have. And just thought to myself, oh, you know, it'd be really cool to to do what she does, just kind of be a coach of coaches, so to mm-hmm. speak. And so that led me to uh, look into uh, and pursuing uh, a sports management curriculum uh, as a postgraduate student, Um, did a lot of research and applied to different programs and was fortunate enough to get into the University of Massachusetts Amherst Sport Management Program, which was kind of one of the founding programs in in the discipline. and uh, was very excited just to pursue, you know, being a college athletic director. And so I, I went out to Amherst, Massachusetts. And uh, ironically, this kind of comes back to the NESCAC connection. I already uh, mentioned that mm-hmm. Coach Arsenal played at Colby College. Uh, ironically, he played against Dave Hickson, yeah. uh, who's the head coach at Amherst College. And he said, you know, Luke, I think you'd, you know, you'd, you'd really enjoy coaching. You know, why don't you go over and, and see Coach Hickson and just see if you can – you know, dabble, see if you can help out, you know, do, do anything to make their program better. So uh, reluctantly, I kind of set up a meeting and, and went and met with Coach Hickson and offered my services. And, and looking back at it now, I was just I'm really fortunate he took me up on it and in, included me in his program. And uh, it was that first year I just really uh, developed a love for, for coaching uh, basketball. That's awesome. And, and just for the listeners who don't know, the, the UMass Amherst Sports Management Programs is one of the best in the entire country too so the fact you're able to do that and coach at amherst which is one of the best division three basketballs in the country is just very impressive too so what was it like to be an assistant for the legendary coach dave hickson at amherst as just your first coaching gig not not everyone gets to coach for a legend in any type of their career yeah, you know, the gas pedal was down. Uh, that that year, I, I think about a lot in my life because uh, it was an intensive one-year master's program. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, and you know, a, a world-renowned sport management program that was very kind of competitive. Um, you know, I had a full-time teaching assistantship on the side. And, and then I was loving coaching basketball so much that I was 
practically doing that uh, full-time as well. So it was uh, the craziest year of my life, but I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, I've been fortunate. I've actually worked with uh, amazing coaches along the way. And, you know, uh, Coach Hickson, uh, Coach Muir at the University of Rochester are two of the best college basketball coaches in the history of the game, regardless yep. of level. And so to have that be my introduction to coaching, uh, it's just, uh, I, I use the word privileged. I, I, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, kind of introduction to coaching the game and uh, a better mentor than, than Dave Hickson. Did, did he give you any advice as you were starting out your coaching career? Uh, he's given me tons of advice o- o- over the years. I mean, he's been my biggest mentor uh, by far, you know, at times best friend, at, at times fatherly. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, he, he's kind of, I talk to him daily, weekly, and he has just uh, been an unbelievable person uh, in my life, he's impacted me in so many ways. And he's a great example of kind of like what a coach can mean to people and, and to think about it, you know, I'm just one person. So, uh, the fact that he's impacted me that way, I always say that coaching is kind of like compound interest. Yeah. You impact one person who impacts other people and it just grows and grows. And for him to be able to do it for 45 years and do it at the level he's done, it's just, uh, it really impressive. So I, I couldn't summarize it in, in one piece of advice. I mean, it's just been, uh, kind of nuggets here and there over the years that have helped me uh, grow as a person and as a coach. So during your first stint at Amherst, the team went on several runs in the NCAA tournament, including to the 2004 Final Four. What was it like to be a part of those special teams and go on those deep tournament runs as such a young coach? Well, not to not to rib you a little bit, but uh, I think you know maybe the biggest accomplishment for, went four for four on little three championships at Amherst. Oh College. yeah, of course, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know the Nescax is a special league, and just uh, you know the, the 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 competition, the games, the quality of student athletes and coaches in that league was really fun. But then you know to do it on the national scene, I think was really impactful. And so you know uh, I think in my four years there, we went to two Final Fours and Elite Eight and a Sweet. 16 and had a ton of success and, and you know obviously winning's fun um, and it kind of you know, lit my fire uh, you know and, and really inspired me to be able to do that with my own program in the future so uh, tons of great memories there and uh, you know from individual games to individual plays to individual players and uh, really was just a very rewarding experience for me. So as I talked about with coach Kevin App of Williams and the uh, and interim head coach Aaron Toomey from Amherst the Amherst-Williams rivalry is almost unmatched in Division Three sports. And in 2003 and four, you guys met Williams in the Elite Eight and the Final Four. Just for the listeners, that's kind of like if Duke and North Carolina met in the Final Four of March Madness, just in terms of like what the rivalry is. So what was it like to just be a part of that rivalry and meet in the tournament with so much on the line? Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, playing anyone – um, you know, twice a year, especially a rivalry game, it's a ton of emotions. And then I kind of came into the NESCAC when they had just started the, the NESCAC postseason tournament. Um, I believe, you know, my first year was the first year they had it. Mm-hmm. And so we routinely, you know, being two of the more successful programs in the league had, had would meet in the NESCAC tournament as well. And so those two seasons that you referenced, uh, that was actually our fourth game against Williams. Yeah. And so to, to play that t- type of uh, game four times in the same season, it just 
um, it added so much. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, there are such significant games with so much passion behind them. Um, thinking back to some of those rivalry games, they were uh, some of the best college basketball games I've been a part of. And so, you know, playing them in the tournament was uh, a unique experience, uh, both in the Elite Eight and the Final Four. Unfortunately, on the wrong side of uh, both those games. Uh, and it, honestly, not to get uh, too off topic, but it, it kind of it was an interesting transition. And um, the division three, uh, basketball tournament, um, yeah. you know, be- because at, when I first got into coaching in the early two thousands, it was very regional based. Mm-hmm. Um, and you really, in order to get to the final four and get out of your region, you had to beat everyone in your region. So in this case, you know, in the new England region, you know, Amherst and Williams couldn't both go to the final four. It, right. you know, only one of them was going to move on. And it was a it was a transition, and so that second time we played in the Final Four was the first um, time that they kind of separated us into different brackets, um, and that was really cool, just because we know we knew we had a, a path there without having to beat everyone in New England, um, mm-hmm. and then to to play them in the Final Four, and so uh, every year since. Um, you know, I think the national committee has done a better and better job of really intermixing regions the best they can and yeah. making it more of a national tournament and not a regional tournament. And I was part of that transition, which was a, a cool experience to have on, on a historical basis. For sure. So after that run to the Final Four, you become an assistant at the University of the South in Tennessee. I'm assuming just living in Tennessee is very different than in Amherst, Massachusetts. What was that transition like besides just, you know, better weather? Yeah, no, I don't, I mean, I don't know if you have uh, many kind of aspiring coaches in in your listening pool, but, um, you know, when I got into coaching division three basketball, it was, it was very ad hoc. It was, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, there weren't full-time assistant basketball coaches at the division three level. And so Mm -hmm. I was kind of piecemealing it together with coach Hickson's help and, doing wearing every hat possible in the athletic department at Amherst College just to make it work and make it sustainable and um, at the time I was still kind of considering the administrative piece so I was getting some good uh, administration experience as well at Amherst and able to to make it doable from a financial perspective and um, kind of uh, without making it too boring got an opportunity to join the advancement office at Amherst and kind of coach at the side and things got reorganized at the last minute and it didn't look like I was going to be able to coach that season. Gotcha. And so, um, you know, with coach Hickson's, uh, uh, help, I was able to kind of last minute, uh, get a full time, uh, full benefited, uh, coaching job at, at Swanee, the university of the South. And that's awesome. It was, uh, an unbelievable, uh, different, experience uh that you know i wouldn't trade for the world coach tony joe tony uh, was doing a great job down there i was alum of the program i I learned a lot from him in the year i was there and uh, was able to kind of just start to bridge to making uh coaching more of a career um and so that was a really nice opportunity for me um it's kind of changed it's a different iteration now but the SCAC the Southern Collegiate Athletic Conference was a really neat league it was one of the few leagues in the in the country that was flying to a portion of their games as the Division Three school we were playing in Texas and Georgia and Mississippi and uh, just got to see parts of the, uh, the United States that I wouldn't have otherwise right. so it was a really really neat experience for me and I still draw a lot on uh, you know the time I spent there that's awesome. So, so you returned to Amherst the following year, 
and help them get back to, as you said, their their second Final Four in a very short amount of time. One member of that team, Andrew Olsen, is regarded as one of the best Division Three basketball players ever, as he was a two-time National Player of the Year and an eventual national champion. What was it like to coach a player like Andrew Olsen in college? Yeah, no, I mean, Andrew is, is one of, so just to give it some context, because it doesn't necessarily make sense, I got the chance to come back because uh, Coach Hickson was named the interim athletic director at Amherst College, uh-huh. and kind of his his ask was to, to kind of bring me back as a full-time assistant to help him do both jobs. Gotcha. Um, so I, that's kind of explains uh, the transition, but um, you know, I was part of the, the group that helped recruit Andrew Olson. And I remember fondly back to his, you know the recruiting experience with him and just getting to know him and his family as as people. And uh, then it was really hard for me to leave because uh, you know I didn't get to coach him in 0405. Um, and so having the opportunity to come back and coach him and his classmates and teammates uh, was was really neat for me. And then for us to have that, that type of year in 06. I mean, uh, won the NESCAC tournament regular season, little three. Um, at, at the time, the school record for wins, I think we had 28 that year. Mm-hmm. You know, Andrew was a huge part of it. So, uh, I mean, he is um, two-time national player of the year, uh, which is an unbelievable accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was uh, one of the, the best players I've ever seen at this level, best players I've ever coached at this level. And so he, he was a huge kind of – uh, driving force for that group and uh, the reason why we were successful. So, Coach, you were also instrumental in recruiting and developing the two winningest classes in Amherst history, the class of 2007 and the class of 2008. A- Andrew Olson is a member of the class of 2008, too. So is there something in particular that sticks out about those guys after all this time? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget those guys. I mean, the, the, the class of 07 kind of if you do the math those 708 and those are kind of the first couple of recruiting classes that I was uh, a big part of uh, as a college basketball coach you know being successful at this level is very much about recruiting uh, recruiting the right type of student athletes that fit your program that are at the right level and uh, to see them go on and have that type of success there I don't know if that the, that record still stands but it was 111 wins it stands career, it stands is, as as of last night on, on the Amherst website, it stands. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, if you think about that, I mean, that is that is av- averaging, uh, you know, 28 wins a year, yeah. which is j- just unbelievable. And so to have that type of success with the, the people, I mean, I mean the, the students that we were working with, you know, incredibly intelligent, hardworking, great people, great families. I mean, it was just a really rewarding experience. And so Andrew Olson is one of that Mm-hmm. the members of the class of 2008 but you know that group in particular i have a huge affection for and stay in touch with andrew's a, a shooting coach for the cleveland cavaliers right now kevin hopkins is the head coach at muhlenberg uh you know uh, matt goldsmith is the head coach at tcnj fletcher walters um you know it's uh, just an unbelievable uh, collective collection of guys um and so uh, they'll always have a special uh, place in my heart. And I just, uh, going through that experience with them was really special. Yeah. I, I want to talk to you about, uh, those, those guys a bit, a little bit later on, but so after a season at Rochester as an assistant, you become the head coach at Skidmore in the summer of 2007. What did it mean to you become a head coach at such a young age? 
Yeah. So, you know, I mean, looking back at it, you know, as you experience uh, more and more in life, like, you know, you always think you're ready for more. And like, you know, when I was an assistant at Amherst, I felt like I was ready to be a head coach. And even though I was really young, you know, I had some different interviews and, and possible opportunities that didn't pan out. And so um, when Coach Hickson went back to being the full-time head coach. You know, I, I kind of said to myself, "Look, as, as hard as it is to leave this group, I, you know, I've been at Amherst, I've had this experience. Like, mm-hmm. I really need to do something next if I want to continue to grow and kind of uh, get over that hurdle to get a head coaching opportunity." And so, the chance to go to the University of Rochester and work with Mike Neer uh, was um, something I couldn't pass up on. It really right. just kind of diversified my experience and my resume, and you know, joining the UAA, the University Athletic Association. Association, uh, and having that experience um, was was incredibly valuable. And you know, I, I thought I was going to be there for longer, but really, was only there for nine months before I got the opportunity to take over at Skidmore College. Right. And so that's kind of how I uh, got to Skidmore and, and had the opportunity to become a head coach. And at 27, you know, it was it was young, but uh, certainly felt like I was ready for the challenge and had a great foundation because of all the you know unbelievable mentors and coaches that I had a chance to work with. So what are some of the things you try to implement and establish in the program from a culture perspective? Yeah, you know, I've always been uh, very broad stroke when it comes to the term culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's a term that gets thrown out a lot uh, that people really focus on. And, um, you know, it's uh, I think it's just a, a, a daily approach. You know, it's, a, it's, it's how you go about running your program, how you go about running your life. Um, and so, you know, I didn't come in with like a prescription, like, you know, this is our culture point number one. This uh-huh. is our culture point number two. It's it's more about just you know working hard and 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 you know making it very clear for the student athletes that you're there to support them. You're there to help them have a positive experience, and you know you're there to work hard with them. And if everyone's genuinely trying their best to be the best person, best student, best basketball player they can be, like you know we're going to work towards great goals. And that's always been my approach to building culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it sounds kind of um, you know surface but that's really what it comes down to um and so that's that was my focus is you know i've seen how successful programs have operated and i'm going to do everything i can to build that here at skidmore i think we have a ton to offer and we have some good people in the program we're going to recruit some good ones and and that's going to help us build the culture we know will help us be successful so obviously the the outside world measures the successful program many times by solely just wins and losses as we aren't at practice every day or in team meetings or staff meetings, just a lot of coaches say that when, as they're building their program, they, they see signs of, pe- of players buying in or signs that it's moving in the right direction. So I'm just curious, what are the signs that a coach like you are looking for from the players and the staff that what you're trying to build is actually taking shape? Yeah, I mean – as a first-time head coach, that's a, a very kind of tenuous, uh, stress-inducing process because, you know, put yourself in my shoes. I'm, I'm coming from a program that just won 28 games, yeah. you know, and, and then I'm, I'm taking over a program that won two. Mm-hmm. Uh, the year before I became the head coach, they were two and 22. And so, um, you know, you th- 
you're confident in what you're doing, you know, you're doing the right things, but when you're not having that measurable success of winning, um, you know, you start to second guess yourself. Uh, and I think that's natural. And so that's when my mentors were invaluable. And so I was able to reach out to coach near and coach Hickson and say, Hey, you know, this is what I'm working with. Like, what do you think? And I'm having this problem. Like, do you have any ideas? Like, am I on the right path? You yeah. know, I know I am just having that reassurance from them is important. And so I think to answer your question, the, the easiest example is that first year, we didn't have a chance to recruit. I got the job in the spring when the admissions process was over and so already over. So we yeah. kind of entered that first year and we were competitive, you know, but we weren't, we weren't great. And so we ended up winning, I think six games my first year. And so yeah. that was hard. You know, I hadn't lost that much ever. Um, and so, you know, I, I was confident that we were doing the right things and I knew, uh, you know, to, to steal one of my favorite coach near expressions, it's not about the X's and O's. It's about the Jim's and the Joe's. Uh-huh. So, you know, go, attacking that recruiting cycle. And, and we brought in a huge group of freshmen and nine guys. One of them, I, I knew I had to get a poly prep kid. So Kyle Clark was, <laughs> was, was part of that group, uh, that first recruiting class at, at Skidmore. Uh-huh. That second season, we went from, you know, basically non-competitive to very competitive. Yeah. Uh, but it, in any league, it's hard to win with that many uh, first-year students. And, and so, you know, they're still trying to learn, you know, what it means to be in college. And so yeah. we, we ended up winning eight games, and it was a great success, you know, because we were competitive. And I knew we were competitive, but you know, we, we didn't take that huge step until the next year. Shout-out to coach the legendary coach Bill McNally from, from Poly Prep. One thing that really stood out to me, Coach, was not just the 10-win turnaround you guys had by your – by your third season, but was that you guys led the Liberty League with six all-academic selections for the 2010 season. So just for the listeners who don't know what that really means is that to make the all-academic team in the Liberty League at in, in 2010, you had to be a sophomore or older and have a GPA of over 3.3 for your entire college career. And at a school like Skidmore, that that's quite a feat while you're balancing sports and a social life and everything else that comes in with just the college experience. How does that happen? And what does that mean to you as a coach that your guys are succeeding not only on the court, but also in the classroom? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's not cliche, but like part of being a successful recruiter and, and part of being a successful program is you have to recruit the right guys, not just good talented basketball players, but people who are at your institution for the right reasons. And, you know, I've always been kind of blessed to work at the, the higher academic institutions. And so part of recruiting to those schools is, is making sure you're someone who's is there for the right reasons academically. And, you know, I've been uh, blessed to you know work with some really high caliber student athletes and, um, you know, that's their priority. The way we talk about our program, we talk about recruiting, you know, first, second, and third, you're at the school because uh, of your academic pursuits and you're, we're going to do everything we can to support you in that. Obviously we take basketball very seriously and, you know, it's a very close second. Uh, but you know, the academics always take priority. And so, you know, that was something that we've, I've always preached since I've been coaching. That's been a huge part of our programs. And, uh, we've had some really high level, uh, academic achievers, uh, since I've been coaching, you know, um, academic all Americans. Um, and this Skidmore group was just a group that was really committed to the classroom, which was really fun to work with. So in the summer of 2010, you take the job at Rochester after one of your mentors, Coach Mike Neer, retired after 34 years at the helm. 
And over his 34 years, he was instrumental in building Rochester to be one of the best programs in all of Division Three basketball. What did it mean to you as a coach to take over such a successful and premier program? Yeah, I mean, I guess taking a step back to just that decision to leave Skidmore, it was uh, it was a very very challenging one, and I think a lot of people outside in would be like, oh, well, you you, know, you had the chance to be the head coach at University of Rochester, that's a no brainer. Well, in some ways, uh, it certainly is, but. You know, when you spend that much time and effort uh, kind of uh, working to build a program and to go from two wins to 16 wins and then, you know, do it with a young group. I mean, we're the majority of our guys that year were sophomores. And so mm-hmm. it was really hard to leave that group. I'm very affectionate towards them. And, you know, it's the kind of um, – the first group I recruited as a head coach. And so, you know, it was a a, a very hard decision. Uh, But at the same time, like, you know, I, um, the reason why I coach, you know, I, I I want uh, everyone who comes through my program to have that uh, same rewarding experience that I had as a student athlete at a high academic division three school. And uh, the the program at the university of Rochester just, you know, afforded me the opportunity to do it, uh, at, at, at kind of the pinnacle, uh, you know, unbelievable research university and, and kind of the highest level of division three basketball and mm-hmm. with some great resources and support. And so, uh, you know, it, it ended up being a no brainer in that sense. And I'm very grateful I made the decision I did, but, uh, it wasn't an easy one. Um, so to get to, you know, coach near and taking over a program, you know, that he worked so hard to build himself and all the success that he had, it was just, uh, a really great opportunity to be able to do it at the highest level, both athletically and academically. And, uh, you know, it was a great honor. So you take over the Rochester program coach and coach near, as I mentioned before, and if you said he was there for 34 years and it's sometimes tough when a program's being led by the same voice for such a long period of time to kind of change and implement stuff that you want to be doing and, and your vision. So you implemented a new offensive system when you took over. It's a read and react style of play with four perimeter players and one low post threat that gives the players a lot of freedom to make plays on their own. Can you explain kind of what went into the decision to play that way? And did you face, I don't want to say any backlash, but, you know, or criticism over not playing whatever a traditional style of Rochester basketball was? Yeah, no, I was I was really fortunate to have the year as, as an assistant coach at Rochester under Coach Neer, mm-hmm. uh, just because I had a great appreciation for, you know, what the program was and, and what was valued in the program, both, you know, X's and O's and culture-wise. And, and so, you know, it, it really isn't, uh, it, it wasn't a change in mm-hmm. a sense. You know, Coach Neer, just like any good coach, you know, I, I pride myself on it really evaluate what uh we're doing year in and year out and so you know the goal when we're trying to come up with you know our our strategy our style is to play to our team's uh, strengths the best we can year in and year out and so there has to be a skeleton to kind of your style of play just because you can't teach it from the ground up every year yeah uh you know we really are are committed uh in the program and it was true of coach near to evaluating kind of how we can best play to those strengths and so the year that I took over you know that the group we had you know that style of basketball was you know really appropriate uh for the group and and allowed the the team to play to its strengths and 
Uh, we had a post player, his name Rob Reed, um, a really incredible passer, six uh, eight kid who just you know really good handling the ball, creating for other people, and so he kind of was a natural to fit into that system where uh, he was kind of creating for others. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it kind of just it, 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 it adapts over time into you know kind of what it is based on the group you have. Yeah, I, I think that's the a great way to do it, and something John Calipari says all the time is that he has to build a system around the guys that he has to best utilize them. And so, but there's one player in particular from from the Rochester team that I want to talk to you about, and that's a uh, John Bitar John D Bartolomeo, who's one of the greatest Division three basketball players of all time. For the listeners who don't know. He was a three-time All-American, was named the 2013 D3Hoops.com National Player of the Year, and finished his college career with over 1,700 career points. So while you only coached for three seasons at Rochester, you must have seen him on the recruiting trail while at Skidmore. Because there's there's something about him that's unique is that he's six feet tall and he's about like 175 pounds. He doesn't, when you just see him and if you just picked him out when he was walking down the street, you wouldn't be like, this guy was an unbelievable basketball player, right? What was it about him that caught your eye on the recruiting circuit when there's just so many guards similar to just his size out there? Yeah, I mean, John DeBartolomeo is the stuff of, of legends. I mean, you, I can tell you stories about uh, John that you know don't even sound believable, you know, given you know kind of him being a six foot guard. So um, he did not catch my eye on the recruiting trail. Uh, I don't think he caught very many people's eyes. Um, you know, he uh, was very under recruited because of what you said. Uh, he played uh, at Staples High School in Connecticut, kind of a, a smaller public regional high school. You know, not a lot of exposure. wasn't you know, heavily involved in AAU. And so uh, it was kind of just a referral. Uh, Jim Driggs was the assistant at the time, uh, had a connection in Connecticut that uh, recommended him. And, um, you know, it, really they recruited him all year. I, you know, I even think if, if the legend has it, you know, correctly, that, you know, they had a point guard that they liked more than him uh, <laughs> and, uh, and ended up getting him. And, um, you know, he, he was had an unbelievable f- f- first year. I mean, he was rookie of the year in the UAA, which mm-hmm. is a huge comp- accomplishment. And when I took over the program to have him in it, I knew he was going to be a huge piece of what we were doing. Uh, the program actually at the time, even though our, our numbers weren't very big, we had uh, back-to-back uh, rookies of the year in Nate Novosel and John DeBartolomeo. And so they were a huge part of uh, what we were doing strategy-wise, X and O-wise. But um, he... John, the, the best version I can tell you is I have never met anyone who has is more humble uh, and driven by that uh, than John. You know, he genuinely did not and probably still does not think he's a very good basketball player. <laughs> um, and every year the drive to prove that uh-huh. wrong uh, was unmatched. I mean, he, he – we're, we're going on – um, you know, 10 years now that, you know, I've been around him as a basketball player and he has noticeably improved at basketball every single wow. year. Uh, and that work ethic and that drive and that determination is, is fueled by the, the insecurity that, you know, uh-huh. he just, he's not good enough. And, wow. you know, um, to accomplish what he has, uh, as a college player, as a professional is, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those once in a lifetime stories. 
So in your first season, Coach, you guys win 22 games. You won the ultra-competitive UAA conference, and you advanced to the NCAA Sweet 16. What was it like to go on that type of run in just your first year with this program? Yeah, it was magical. It was magical. We had seven recruited players in the program uh, at the time. We kind of rounded it out with, um, you know, a couple of walk-ons, a, a couple of uh, last-minute recruits. And, uh, you know, I, the group that was there were, were all there for great reasons. You know, they were passionate about the university. They were passionate about the program. They were willing to sacrifice for the good of the group. And so, you know, we were able to take um, a huge step that year and, and really be successful. And I think as long as I coach, it'll be a, a group. It was, it, it was magical. You know, it's just, we kind of just kept achieving uh, at a higher and higher level and, and, and kind of over, overperforming. And, uh, you know, it was a tribute to them as players. It was just uh, a really special group of student athletes and a magical run. So the 2012-2013 team was also special. It was D. Bartolomeo's senior year, and you guys started the year on an 18-game winning streak and ascended to number one in the G3Hoops.com National Top 25 poll. I know coaches say that they don't pay attention to the polls and that they don't really care about it, but it's different to be number one compared to 22. So what did it mean to you as, as a coach to be the number one team in the country? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, different than that first year, you know, John uh, DeBarlemeo's senior year, there was there were huge expectations. Mm-hmm. You know, we we really felt like we had a group that could win a national championship, and um, you know, we were were very hungry to do that. And you know, we had a huge target on our backs. John had a huge target on his back. Everyone mm-hmm. knew exactly how good he was. He he was already the player of the year in the league as a sophomore, and so you know, the, the level of expectation was huge. And so. Um, getting off to that start uh, was really special. Uh, Eighteen and zero, number one in the country. I mean, it's uh, you know you don't you don't get to do that every year. And so you know we were just really trying to focus on enjoying the process, enjoying the journey, as people say. And um, you know it was a lot of fun. So the 2016-2017 team, you know, uh, some could argue that they were even better than the 2013 team, as the team went 24 and five and made a run to the Elite Eight. Uh, fall into an undefeated Whitman team. What do you remember most about that group of guys and that season? Yeah, no, I mean, it was a similar season. We kind of, um, it was a, a, a steady climb uh, up to that 15, 16 year when we went 17 and eight. Uh, and I, I think, you know, we were disappointed not to make the tournament. Um, you know, our goals uh, in the, in our program is to be nationally competitive year in and year out. And so for us, you know, competing in the league means competing on a national level and uh, any year we don't make the national tournament uh, is, mm-hmm. is kind of motivating. Um, and so that group was incredibly motivated. Uh, we had a, a very talented group uh, in the class of 2017 uh, Sam Borst Smith, uh, who was the player of the year in the UAA, Mac Montague and Zach Ayers, um, were three really, really talented guys all in the same class. And, um, they hadn't achieved what they wanted to in their career at the university of Rochester to date. And so they were incredibly motivated that off season leading into that season and, and worked incredibly hard and kind of weren't going to be denied. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, it was a different type of, uh, kind of mood uh, in the sense that you could just tell that, you know, they, they, they weren't going to be denied and they were going to do whatever it took to be successful. And they're going to do it a little bit with a chip on their shoulder just because they knew they could accomplish more. 
Yeah, I, I remember that was my freshman year at Wesleyan, and we were in your pod. We were up at Rochester. We played Union in the first round, and you know I started to watch you guys on film. And then after we lost to Union, we watched your first game. I think you guys played Albertus Magnus. I, I want to say, but I don't know if, if that's right. And we yep. were and we were watching up in the up in the stands, and we're all disappointed that like the season was over. And I'm watching you guys come out and play. I'm like, we if, if we won, we were in for a doozy. The the next night that that would have been a, a battle and it would have been a great game but that that team was really really good so so I want to transition here and kind of talk about some of the big picture things that I noticed during researching you and the Rochester program so I just want to start with that the league in general coach is the UAA and it has schools such as Emory Brandeis and Washington University St. Louis and it's sometimes nicknamed the airplane league as teams fly for away games because the schools and league are so spread out around the country. What are just some of the challenges of playing in such a geographically diverse conference? Yeah, no, the, uh, the impetus for the league is founded in 1988. And, you know, everyone was kind of uh, almost isolated in their geographic region. You know, there weren't a lot of schools uh, like them. Um, all larger national research universities. Um, and so, you know, it was the, kind of founded because they wanted to compete against like-minded institutions, mm-hmm. um, which created the, the landscape of the University Athletic Association. Uh, the, the history behind it, the story behind it is really special. And being able to compete against like-minded schools like that, just like in the NESCAC, are all New England small colleges. I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, it's, it's special. Obviously, there's a huge commitment to do it, um, you know, on the national stage. But it's a really fun league uh, yeah. because, you know, we, we get to travel to major cities and sightsee and, and place, you know, big name schools. Um, but it certainly comes with challenges. You know, I, obviously uh, the, the distance of travel, even though it, it's become a science and it's very routine at this point, you know, it, it is more significant than other leagues and uh, it's very competitive. Um, you know, the, the level of coaching and I, I think the biggest difference for me compared to others is the le- level of preparation. Uh, we play Friday, Sunday in our league mm. and we kind of have that day in between versus like a normal Friday, uh, Saturday league. And so you really, the, the level of scouting and opponent preparation that uh, is required and that you receive in return is is incredibly high. And um, so I think that's one of the biggest challenges is just, you know, knowing that, you know, the team you're playing is going to be incredibly well prepared for you and uh, you have to be that in return. So one really noteworthy thing about you as a coach is that everywhere you've been, it seems the team has excelled academically too. It wasn't just at at Skidmore. For instance, in the 2018-2019 season, you had eight players make the UAA all-academic team. And just like at Skidmore for for the UAA, guys must be sophomores or older and carry at least a 3.3 GPA. While researching, I I read that you guys have mandatory study halls for the freshmen on the team. But I'm just curious how you're able to have so many players make the all-conference academic team at such a rigorous research school like Rochester? Yeah, no, we've kind of evolved. I mean, the, the, the rote study hall is, is kind of, um, 
used to be part of our program and, and just like you know what we do on the court we've evaluated and adjusted and there's a lot of resources uh, on campus to help you know with student athlete student academic success and so we've kind of repurposed uh, that study hall process um where, where they have uh you know use their time better than just kind of being in a quiet room um, mm-hmm. but you know I, I think it's again it's about it's about culture um and recruiting the right type of students. Uh, I wouldn't say we do anything magical when it comes to, um, you know, student academic support. I mean, we're there for our guys. We talk to them a lot about their classes and, and you know, their academic pursuits and how we can best support them. But uh, I think it all starts with recruiting the right type of person who, you know, has been a high academic achiever, who's excited about being pushed and challenged and wants to do everything they can to, reach their academic potential. And, um, you know, there, I'm sure there's exceptions, but you know, the, the vast majority of guys who come through our program, you know, want to succeed academically and they mm-hmm. see their friends doing it and they're motivated by that. And so this year's team, uh, you know, everyone who was eligible for the UAA, uh, all academic team made it. Um, wow. I think that's almost like my biggest accomplishment uh, as a coach is supporting them through that and uh-huh. seeing them achieve at that level. I and mean, we had, uh, first team academic all district this year and our junior Ryan Algier. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean, we we're as excited about those academic accomplishments as we are about their accomplishments on the court. That's awesome coach. So, so for the, so for the listeners, just for who, who don't know, John B. Mayo has, was not only just an incredibly successful player at Rochester, but he's also gone on to have a very successful professional career overseas first in Spain and then now in Israel and he even got to match up against Kobe Bryant and the Los Angeles Lakers in a preseason game. What was it like as a coach to see a former player not only be able to continue his playing career at a high level overseas, but then also be able to match up against a true basketball icon in Kobe? Yeah, no, I mean, John's um, John's path his his journey people say all the time like you know they can't believe where the game of basketball has taken them and like what they've been able to experience as a result and talking about the the barlameo's story i mean he he graduated from here he he worked hard to get a professional opportunity he got signed by uh acb zaragoza as a top level team in spain that farmed them out to kind of a, a lower division team and um, you know, his, his journey professionally mirrors his journey, uh, as a college basketball player. I mean, he just was incredibly motivated and, and pushed himself to succeed and got an opportunity to sign at a slightly higher level in, in the winter league mm-hmm. in, in Israel. Uh, he was playing with Maccabi Haifa, which is, you know, a very you know, strong program. He was actually the uh, MVP of the winter league, which was a huge accomplishment, and then had the opportunity to jump over to Maccabi Tel Aviv. Um, yeah. At Maccabi Tel Aviv is kind of um, the way it's been described to me, the L.A. Lakers of, of European basketball. Yeah. Um, you know, he's had similar success there. He's, you know, captain of the team, uh, which is a, a huge accomplishment at that level of basketball. And as part of, um, you know, those international teams and leagues, they, they very often play exhibitions in the preseason. So he's mm-hmm. played against a number of uh, NBA teams, whether yeah. Maccabi Haifa or Maccabi Tel Aviv. They played the Sacramento Kings, the Memphis Grizzlies, and he did play the Lakers when Kobe was there. And so, um, you know, seeing just, you know, watching that game, we're seeing pictures of him with Kobe on the court. It's uh, it's pretty amazing to think you know a player at the University of Rochester has that professional opportunity. Yeah, for for sure. And obviously, even though we're talking about John Bitarlomeo, programs are not just built on the back of one player. 
there have been many great players to come through the Rochester program under your tenure, and many NABC All-Americans, including Sambor Smith, Ryan Klamage, and a rising senior on your team now, Ryan Algier. So not a lot of programs can say they've had four different players make an NABC All-American team this past decade, or many coaches say that they've ever coached one All-American ever. What is, it, what is it about your program that helps develop these guys to reach that level? Yeah, I mean, I, I keep coming back to it. I think it's about recruiting the right type of player. And so we, we've talked a lot, uh, fortunately, on this, David, and I appreciate that, about academic pursuit and academic success. And like I told you in, in our recruiting process, you know, equally important to that academic piece, we want someone who is uh, incredibly self-motivated and driven to do everything they can to reach their potential as a basketball player. And we do everything we can to support them in it. And so, you know, it's not a perfect science. I, I, I couldn't have told you with certainty that those, you know, four guys were all going to become All-Americans. But mm-hmm. I do think that drive and that kind of, uh, you know, that we look for in recruiting and, and we, we encourage while they're here on campus is just to kind of be all in on uh, eternal improvement. Um, it helps them kind of push themselves and, and reach that level. So, Coach, I, I want to go back as we reach the very end here. I appreciate you taking all this time, but I've, you you mentioned the the great Amherst class of two thousand eight alone. In that, I don't I don't know if this counts for your coaching tree, but it's pretty impressive. As you mentioned, Andrew Olson is the shooting coach for the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA. Kevin Hopkins is the head coach at Muhlenberg, and Matt Goldsmith is the head coach at TCNJ. What is it like for you to see these guys who you coached and recruited now running their own programs? Yeah, no, it's really fun. Uh, you know, going back to what I when I was talking about Coach Hickson and I was talking about compound interest, uh, you know, the influence that, you know, he had on me, on others. I mean, and now to see uh, a lot of people get into coaching, you know, it says a lot about kind of that leadership from the top. And so, you know, you mentioned the Amherst guys, uh, University of Rochester is the exact same. Mm-hmm. A ton of uh, Rochester players. Uh, have gone on to coaching. Uh, a number of my former assistants are now head coaches. Um, Jeff Duran uh, at Suffolk uh, University in Boston. He uh, was a player on the team when I was an assistant. He was my assistant at um, Skidmore and Rochester. Ryan Mee now at Vassar. Yep. Uh, the, the, the laundry list. I mean, there's six upstate New York Division Three head basketball coaches that are Rochester basketball alums. Wow. Um, and so I, and I, I think it comes back to coach near and, and coach Hickson and just kind of the way they run their program, you know, what they're all about. It just fosters, you know, high achievers and, and people who want to succeed. And so having, you know, being part of those coaching trees on the receiving end and then, you know, helping create those opportunities uh, for, for guys as they come through is, is really neat. And you, you're just, you cheerlead them, you know, you're, you're excited about their, their own program successes. You're there for each other when it comes to professional development or mentorship. And, you know, I talk to all those guys that we've just mentioned all the time and mm-hmm. I, I do everything I can to help them succeed. And I know they're there for me when I need them too. And, you know, having that bond, um, you know, we're all in it for the same reasons. Right. We want our guys, we want our guys to have great student athletic experiences and go on to be doctors and lawyers and you know, everything under the sun. But, you know, a vast, uh, a, a large number have gone on to, to coaching as, as a career profession. And, and, you know, it's just excited to see them, you know, cause you know, they're having a positive impact on their players. So coach, I have five rapid fire questions as, as we approach the end here. You ready? Yeah, let's go. All right. So, do you have any pregame superstitions? Uh, 
you know, I've gotten less superstitious uh, over the years. Uh, when I started at, at Amherst, I used to think it was, I, I was big into like respecting your opponents. And uh-huh. uh, I maybe took it too far at the time. But <laughs> actually, uh, wear uh, our opponent's colors subtly in my outfit. In my suit. <laughs> so, uh, we were playing Wesleyan. I might choose that day to wear a red tie. It was kind of, uh, it was what the UAA is all about. It's uh-huh. about, you know, uh, you know, respecting your opponents, competing the right way, doing everything you can to beat them. But when the game's over, understanding that you're like-minded. And so that was one of my big superstitions that I've moved past. So the UAA, for the listeners who don't know, doesn't have a traditional conference tournament that gives out an automatic bid for the national NCAA tournament. It's the winners of the regular season standings. What do you think of the fact that the league doesn't have a conference playoff, and would you like to see that change? Yeah, you know, on you know, on paper, I would love to have a tournament, but it's just not realistic uh-huh. uh, given our uh, our circumstance. Um, you know, it's. Uh, you know, having that postseason uh, opportunity is would be exciting, uh, just because you know our league is so strong, top to bottom, and I think we'd have some great games uh, at the end of the year. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there, there's something to be said for rewarding uh, a season's performance. And um, although it would be fun, it's not really a practical option for us. And so I don't see us having a, a league tournament moving forward. And so I'm really all in on on saying, you know, the team that's proven to be the best over the course of, of league play really deserves that opportunity to go on and compete in the national tournament and represent the league what is your worst flight or travel experience during your time at rochester um fortunately uh the vast majority are are pretty straightforward maybe a delay here or delay there but one year um we got snowed in oh wow cleveland and i don't (laughs) even know why we were connecting in Cleveland, but uh, we left late after class on Thursday, like we typically do. We hopped on a flight. We connected in Cleveland to get to Chicago. It must have been, uh, you know, a cheaper flight. Uh, mm-hmm. And so our we were on the last flight out that night to Chicago, and it got canceled. Oh no! But it, it didn't get canceled until three or four hours in the airport. And um, you know, so thankful for our associate athletic director. Andrea Golden at the time, she, you know, she's up at, at 1 a.m., you know, getting us a hotel, rebooking us, making sure we're all good to go. So we don't get to the airport hotel until, uh, you know, I'm probably exaggerating, but let's say 3 a.m. Uh, we go to sleep. We have to get up at 6 a.m. To, to catch our flight. <laughs> we're, on the, we're on the first one out. We, we fly to, to Chicago, you know. By the time we get into the city and get to our hotel, like, we just crash. Yeah. Uh, and we ba- basically sleep, get up, and play. Uh, Friday night at, at the University of Chicago, and, and we're able to win. Very tough place to win. Uh-huh. Uh, it was just kind of a <laughs> one of those magical moments. Like you, right. didn't, you didn't have time to worry about anything. You just fought through the adversity and found a way, and, and kind of thought about it after the fact uh, affectionately. That's great. So I have two mailbag questions to end here from our from our great listeners. The first one is the current Cleveland Cavs GM Colby Altman played his college ball at Middlebury in the NESCAC while you were coaching at Amherst. What type of a player was he in college? Oh, he's a much better GM. (laughs) 
No, I mean, I, I remember him fondly as a player. I mean, he was a very strong NESCAC player. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to have a, a great relationship with Kobe Altman. Uh, he uh, went through the program at UMass, the sport management program at UMass Amherst. He, he coached with Coach Hickson as well for a couple of years. And, and we got really close to that. And he reminds me of John DeBartolomeo in a lot of ways and his humbleness, um, you know, even able to accomplish what he has. He, he's an incredibly humble person. He's an incredibly giving person. And he's uh, salted the earth uh, you know he's one of the best people in our game so lastly it's widely debated amongst diehard NESCAC fans over who was the better player Michael Crotty who was the point guard at Williams while you're an assistant at Amherst or obviously Andrew Olson while you, who you coached at Amherst just in your opinion who was the better player and why oh are those my only options well these are well you could throw in who whoever you want, but th- this was just the specific two people who I was asked to ask about. Uh, John DeBartolomeo is the, <laughs> the best uh, Division three <laughs> basketball player that I have seen mm-hmm. um, since I've been coaching uh, in the last you know 20 years. He, um, as a scoring point guard, he was the first player that I really came across that was could score at every level mm-hmm. e- equally. And what I mean by that is he was just as good finishing at the rim as he was with his floaters, as he was with his mid-range game, as he was from distance. Um, and in addition, he passed as well as he scored, and he played defense as well as he passed. Right. And so um, as far as a well-rounded basketball player, there's no one been, in my mind, that even comes close. Uh, but Andrew Olson being a you know, national player of the year, uh, and Mike Crotty, I mean, uh, I, I don't typically like to say nice things about people from Williams, but, um, <laughs> you know, he was one of the best players I've, I've coached against as well. So uh, those are two elite, elite point guards. And honestly, because of the timing, um, you know, Aaron Toomey and, yeah. uh, and John DeBarlineo got compared a little bit more. Right. Him and, him and Olsen, uh, all amazing players. And uh, any, any coach would be just blessed to have them as a point guard on, on the on their team so coach i i really appreciate all all the time today and and as usual on, on the double double we give the last word to the coaches so do you have anything you want to say to the great people of rochester the university of rochester community i mean they they do a great job supporting uh our, our program uh and we are I'm just blessed every day. Very fortunate to work with the caliber of student athlete in person that I get to work with and and, and great to have the resources of the University of Rochester and the support system we have. And, and, uh, you know, my mother always told me, pick a career where it doesn't feel like you're working. And uh-huh. I haven't, I haven't worked a day in my life. And I'm <laughs> lucky, to, lucky to do it uh, at, at such a high level. That'll do it for this episode of the Double Double. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much appreciated. And you can follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend. Take care and make it a great day.